Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 115 with my friend, Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca Rush. We don't, we don't even cover this. We dive so deep in so quickly. Um, I know Rebecca from The Sober Curator, where we have both contributed content. And there's a trigger warning for this episode. Rebecca does discuss sexual assault, as well as um, some some opinions about AA that if you're in the program, you might find uh, triggering. So just a heads up. But other than that, you know, great interview. I hope you guys listen and enjoy as much as I did. We're kind of all over the place. And uh, without further ado, though, I'm going to dive right in just like we did for the conversation. This is my friend, Rebecca. You and I have lots in common. Request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? Why would I not? I don't know. It's so weird to me how normal people are. Well, I'm excited to dive into all that. Um, <laughs> can we go back like, in time? I'm constantly offending people just by being myself. Uh, sure, 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 sure. Where, uh, where are you from? Where were you born? Uh, Connecticut. Okay. Uh-huh. You have siblings? Kinda. You know? Uh, I have a sister and I guess I have a stepsister. I'm kinda not talking to my stepsister um right now. Yes, technically I do. Okay. Technically. Uh, where like, where are you in that sibling order? I'm the oldest. Okay. And what's uh what do your parents do when you're born? Like work-wise and everything. Oh, my mom was a CPA and my dad's a lawyer. Okay. How did that look in your household growing up? Because those are two pretty demanding jobs, I would say. Uh, you know what? They kind of just like would... Uh, my parents aren't really like emotionally equipped for things. Um, so they just kind of would be like, you can have anything you want at the toy store, you know, and that's kind of all I know of love. <laughs> Fair enough. What's, well, and, and my parents are like, if we'd like to focus on the positives there, I've done it. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> they bought me things. I didn't. There's, Thank there's you. no good stories on the positives. Um, what, uh, what's the age difference between you and your sister? Like three and a half years. Okay. So you don't remember her like being born. I do because what she was born uh, four months early. Okay. Well, and that was like in the eighties and like AIDS yeah. blood and you know, so my, it, it got kind of weird. She was in the hospital for a long time. Wow. Um, April, May, maybe she was born in February instead of May. So that's pretty significant. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I remember that. That's crazy. Yeah. Cause yeah, I imagine God, just that dynamic at home. There... Well, and then my sister, like, anything she did was, like, my fault, I guess, because, like, I wanted a sister. That was, like, my parent, my sister had, like, she would freak out all the time. And we, this was, like, what, the 80s and 90s. Before we went to, like, Disney World that year, they'd have to be, like, all right, so I know we call her a terrorist all the time, but you can't say that at the airport. Like, I, that's, like, my, some of my first vacation memories is my parents being, like, so... We say all this horrible shit about your sister, but if you say it at the airport, they are not going to let us on the plane. So zip it. And I'd be like, what the fuck? 
I'd be so afraid I was just going to be like, you're a terrorist. And then they'd like bring me away. That's just what they called her. Why did they just like not call her that? Couldn't manage. It's too funny for them. What, uh, <laughs> um, what, is, what is the dynamic there between you and your sister when you guys are kids? Uh, you know, there was just, it was one of those classic, like emotionally immature households where there is not enough conditional esteem to go around because my parents are very much only gave a shit about what they gave a shit about. And like, you know, they really just kind of saw us as like in that, like, you know, if, if you're like crying because you're hungry, like the immature parents can see it as like, you're fucking with them. You're manipulating them. Like they attribute all these like really dark <laughs> attributes to like having needs. Yeah. Um, because it's like burdensome to them. They can't handle it. So my sister and I were kind of at odds because they would pit us against each other. You know, there wasn't, and that's what happens in those families. There wasn't enough conditional steam attention to go around. And my dad was always cheating and my mom was drinking. And, um, and then when my dad left for his secretary, Connecticut, um, and my mom worked for him by then because she didn't have the social skills required. I think my mom's probably autistic too. And like, I literally found it in like divorce transcripts. Like she didn't get partner at her dad's firm. because She didn't have the social skills. She went over to work for my dad. Then he left her for his secretary that uh, whose office was right across from her. So my mom just her and the bottle of vodka, you know what I mean? That was that. How uh, old were you when that happened? 11. Oh, wow. So my sister, and like if, my sister and I could talk, then my mother, my mother would be like, oh, that is like a coffee mug full of water. And I'm like, I think that's really vodka. And my sister would be like, oh, I think it's vodka too. So we needed to be separate. You know what I mean? Yeah. We very much needed to be separated. Um, and my mom just was like a big triangulator. I think that's the only way she knew how to feel special. So, and also my mom kind of sold my sister on this idea that my dad didn't love her and only loved me so she could do that kind of triangulation. So that triangulated me and my sister in different interesting ways. We've tried, we had moments like in college or here or there, um, but it's just such a foundational divide, yeah. you know? Well, it's, it's crazy. And to... then my sister is like caught up with my dad now and he's like a really bad narcissist. So it's all the flying monkey shit. And like my dad still tries to tell me what I'm allowed to talk about on the internet and in my writing, I'm 41 years old and he won't, let it go. So I finally had to stop talking to him because I wrote that like the family group chat was invalidating and and nobody even noticed that I left it. And my stepsister was like, fuck off. You don't care about your family. You like only noticed that I left the group chat when I got five likes on a tweet and you're embarrassed. Fuck you. But uh, my, I can't trust my sister right now. And this is the saddest thing. I would be happy to talk to my sister right now and have her in my life. However, she works for my dad, not for money, but for love. So that doesn't exist. So like, I, she can't be trusted. If I post anything, she needs that. Like, you know what I mean? That's currency. That's little conditional esteem fucking pellets that she's going to bring over in, in exchange yeah. for tokens of, you know, and, and it just sucks. So there wasn't a, I, and I, and I'm thinking I'm, I'm projecting my own shit here, but cause my brother is three and a half years older than me. <laughs> so oh, when shit. We, well, when we think about or talk about like our parents divorce or, uh, you know, our grandparents dying and stuff like we experience those things very differently. Uh, and you being the older one, I imagine 
experienced that divorce way differently than your sister did. And like most people don't ever even unpack that, right? They just have some sort of resentment here, resentment there. And so, I mean, what, what was that like for you? Did your dad then stick around? Cause I guess he worked there, right? So you, did you guys like do weekends or like, how did that play out? Yeah, I will say about my, the problem with the ultimate problem with me and my sister now is that like that divide where she does not want to look at anything, talk about anything. She wants to tell if I bring it up, it's, I'm in the past. And I'm like, but these patterns are playing out. These dynamics are playing out right now. Yeah. And no. And I just and so last uh, year for her birthday, I told her that I was not going to try to talk about our family with her anymore. And that was my gift to her. And she was like, thank you. She just like is really passive and she just doesn't want to, she just wants to work at her insurance job and fucking ride her Peloton and drink the fucking wine every night. And like, don't come at her with anything real. Fair enough. <laughs> and what, uh, th- when do you leave Connecticut? Uh, when I was 23. So what does life look like, like post high school then? I went to college. Where'd you go to college? UConn. <laughs> okay. What did you, I mean, I guess let's back up too. I'm always curious. I mean, like I this. studied poetry and 9-11 happened, you know? Yeah. And then after 9-11, all of a sudden everybody started doing coke. And I really felt like they were connected. Like it's like that sense of power, you know, and control. Well, like a, there was no Coke. I never saw Coke in my life before 9-11. But and then you also, everybody was doing it. But my mom told me that I would die instantly yeah. if I ever did cocaine. She told me that my whole life. And I believed it. Because my dad was a lawyer in the 80s. Like obviously he like was doing Coke and annoying her. Um, which is how I assume she got this theory. Because my dad told me, like, hey, by the when I was in college, he's like, just so you know, you know, cocaine's like cool. Just like don't do it all the time. I was like, like one of my friends only has one nostril left and that was like his big drug college talk but my mom was like listen to me if you ever do cocaine you will die instantly you have a heart problem and uh i went and list got my heart listened to at school no no i don't my mom has one chance of a proxy is what she has my heart's great um so i went and did some cocaine do you think that was uh, like her method of of maybe if i scare the shit out of her she won't she won't ever do it no, because my mom also, like, has diagnosed me with bipolar. Like, she's an accountant. I don't know. She got me the medication somehow. <laughs> she thinks everybody has bipolar. Like, she likes to – she's diagnosed me and my sister with, like, various allergies that we don't have. Yeah. Um, or she, like, tells people I'm allergic to poison ivy. It's like, bitch, everyone is. Everyone is allergic <laughs> to poison ivy. That's how, That's why it's called poison ivy. Um. <laughs> so, no, I consider that to go from the scare you into, like, the that's munch – that's – Scare, scare you, scare yourself. That's where it goes from manipulation to munch houses. Yeah. So college turns into what? Trying out some shit? And- just writing, I was just writing, you know, writing poems. I thought I was going to be like the next Allen Ginsberg for real. Because we're going to poem I was pretty sure was going to change the world, uh, which I lost somewhere. But it was really good. I worked on it so hard. Um, and that's kind of all like, you know. And then I met Cocaine and I got an abusive boyfriend. So I didn't really know. I remember crying like on graduation, like I'm like 21. And I was like, I didn't think my life was going to turn out like this. I just always been, I get like that now. It's like, I get like in these, my life is over and I've failed it. Like self-pity modes. And 
And then I'm like, eventually I'll be like, but this is the youngest you're ever going to be. And then it's like, oh, I know. Real it seems so silly to be like, my life turned out badly when I was 20, but it kind of is silly to do that at 42 because I'm 40 and not dead, you know? Amen. <laughs> um, can you, or, I mean, I don't want to press in anything you don't want to talk about, but I'm curious about the like cocaine abusive boyfriend because it sounds like that is a situation that's escalating into you eventually moving out of the state and across the country uh no that was no timing wise i've only been in i mean that was like over 20 years ago and i've lived in la for like three and a half years where did you go when you left well you said you left at 23 yeah i didn't leave i met some idiot and we moved together for a job he got and then we moved together for a job he got again then we got married bought a house and uh and and it got divorced and then I moved back with my mother and the whole thing in the first place was just, I got married just to get away from that bitch. Cause my whole life I had been taught, like I couldn't take care of myself and I didn't know that I was autistic. So like my executive dysfunction shit, like emotion shit, like not understanding how to like be socially was always really fucking with me, you know? Yeah. yeah but thankfully I was cute. So I got to get, <laughs> you know, uh, taken advantage of a lot cause I was so naive, but at least people would let me in the room when did you start pursuing comedy uh when i was like 30 okay and i'm no longer in comedy but i was like living with my mom i was working for like a online merchandising company called old glory in connecticut as their social media person and uh it was twitter i started writing i would just say what i was thinking on twitter and people before like hearts or whatever would just like right back like but um and i'd be like what the fuck like, i was just being honest i was just like saying what i thought like i wasn't trying to be funny yeah. and people kept telling me like that i was being funny like accidentally um and i went to like and then i started like actually trying to write jokes on twitter because like 2009 twitter was 2008 twitter was like you could be like my tits love bacon and it'd be like ah you get like tweet of the day on safe star <laughs> um and so I got into that. I started writing like my, you know, my spirit animal is like those, like they were, we called them memes then those format jokes that everybody would do it. You do. It. And then I started writing my own jokes. Once I kind of got the hang of the formats, you know, then your brain starts going from there. And I went to this meetup uh, for people that wrote jokes on Twitter. And, and some people were like, Oh, are you a stand up comic? And like, what do you, I'm like, what What's that? And then throughout the year, a couple of people told me I should, I wrote like a five minute set and I sent it to that woman. I had met at that, meet up and uh and then i tried uh, i got on stage with like 28 tweets uh after heckling after heckling the host and uh and it actually went very well that's good me and my my list of tweets <laughs> so and now i've come full circle because i'm now only writing jokes on twitter again what what is going on I, and, and you kind of went through this and again i like if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine but I'm just curious because that's like a decade chunk, right? Like uh -huh. college to moving back in with your mom, like the meeting uh -huh. the guy, getting the house. Oh, well, it was like six years. What What does that time look like for you? Like, what are you doing other than being in that marriage? Like, what are you doing with your life? Where did you guys move to? Like, do we that... live? I wasn't doing shit with my life. My life was all about his fucking life. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Like I spent 18 months planning my wedding. I remember when I chose the final thing, I cried because my life was now meaningless, you know, and nothing. I cleaned. I fucking used to cook for the dogs, like multiple meals. I cooked for him. I did all like all that. I just learned how to become a housewife. My mom can't cook or clean. Uh, We had a, a housekeeper for a lot of my childhood, but I just learned how to like I learned from the food network and shit, like how to cook and clean. And, and I was really sad and lonely. And like, I remember in, I was living in fucking South beach and I would like, couldn't wait till 3 PM because Amanda Bynes, what I like about you would come on with fucking Jenny Garth. And I would, I would give up trying for the day by 3 PM. Like no matter, like I would stop trying to pretend that I was a person was living a life and i would just sit down and just smoke weed and watch shitty television and just be so relieved like once i just feel such an immense sense of pressure when to get anything done and it's just such a relief to be like nope no i would write a little bit but i really didn't have i just all i wanted was to find somebody to take care of me so i could sit around and get high and write poetry like diana duprima you know one of the beats and i was obsessed with the beats and uh and then i had nothing to write about you know what i mean I was like the stay-at-home mother of dogs. Like I had, I mean, I lived in South Beach and I would go to a tanning bed just because I was so fucking bored and I couldn't get myself to do like anything good for my life. I became a realtor. I sold one house to myself that got foreclosed on. That's how good I was at that. Um, not, yeah, not a great realtor resume. That's, that's No, awesome. I actually got fired from being a realtor. Do you know how hard that is? They don't even pay you. <laughs> <laughs> and but what happened is my husband found a picture of my coworker's dick in my Palm Pilot, and uh, he called them, threatened to murder him, and uh, they didn't want to hang my license there anymore after that. Yeah. I remember the broker being like, "I don't care what you do, uh, but I care that you're not very discreet about it." <laughs> yeah, Dick's oh man, in but a that Palm guy made pilot. me feel alive, Daniel. Daniel Vietia. Daniel, if you're out there. No, don't. I didn't say it because I showed up at Daniel's drunk. I didn't even you know. And I felt like very Bill Clinton because I remember that night I sucked Daniel's dick, which was very oddly thick. And I like I'll still remember that. Just like a it's like a mushroom. And and I was like, I did not have sex with that woman. Like, I just was like very Bill Clinton about it in my head. And I felt legit. I kind of grew up on that. And I was like, that's a good justification. It's called rationalization, um, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, but Daniel liked to drink and my ex-husband didn't. Um, he just wanted to do coke. And it's like, bro, 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 how much do we hate ourselves? Come on. Um, and I showed up at Daniel's drunk when I got in a fight with my husband. And he told me, he emailed me that if I ever contacted him again, he would file a restraining order. But guess what, Daniel? Uh, you would have to be afraid that I was going to physically harm you. So you can't do that. I should email him and be like, hey, <laughs> just saying, hey, that I'm not going to hurt you physically. Yeah. <laughs> Put it on the record. We'll, re- we'll, we'll make that the, uh, the headline of the, the episode. Just <laughs> disclaimer, <laughs> Daniel, no harm is going to come your way. Uh, electronic signature. Um, so you're back. Do you home. think if I like wanted to buy a house that Daniel would sell it to me? Yes. Cause people <laughs> so love money. Um, and somewhere. Do you think he would mind. pretend he didn't remember me? I mean, God, how bored do I think I am? He probably doesn't remember. He probably gets like 
husband threatening to murder him like once a year. That is a sad life. <laughs> I mean, really? Is it? Maybe sounds very exciting. So fleeting. Um, so you're back home. You find mm-hmm. out you're funny. <laughs> um, and the is the open mic, like all the comedy stuff, are, is that what you're doing in, you're doing all that in Connecticut? Mm-hmm. You're going and down I remember, to New like, York my, or anything? I was going to New Haven. Okay. And I remember my boss would be like, eggs, I was doing social media, so I ended up taking pictures of myself in the t-shirts, but I didn't always want my face in eggs, then I felt like, oh, I don't let people know who I am. And my boss would be like, Rebecca, you're more than your breasts. And I'd be like, that's what you think. <laughs> um, and uh, and also, like, if you don't, like, you need to work more than 30 hours. I never worked, like, in my life, like, full time. I was like, yeah, that. And I'd be like, I'm going to comedy because I figure I didn't, I never worked long enough anywhere to get unemployment. And I thought unemployment was, like, your whole money. And I remember when it I started doing comedy and it had hit me that, like, oh, I've been at this job long enough to get unemployment. I should get fired. And then I just kept not working 40 hours. Like, I have to go do unpaid comedy. So important. I leave at like 3 PM. Um, and I could have come in earlier, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And then you found yeah. out unemployment is a fraction of your, of your work. Yeah. Yeah. That was wild. I lived in eight places that year. I'd also never paid rent in my life. I was 30 years old. I had never paid rent in my whole life. And then, my boyfriend had moved in because we were going to move to California together. And then he quit his job at Yale. My mom was like trying to triangulate and he wasn't into it. So then she decided she hated him. Um, so then it was her idea for him to move in. It got real tense. And then she was like, you should probably move out too. I moved out with him because I didn't think I could do life on my own. And then that blew up. And, uh, and then I lived in eight places that year. That's a lot of moving around. Yeah, I really just did not believe that I could do life on my own. So, like, I kind of was just at the mercy of people that could is how I felt. You know what I mean? Like, I really did not believe, like, somebody, I'd be like, oh, you, like, it would just seem to, I still kind of feel like that about, like, I guess certain, like, career accomplishments. Like, oh, that's for, like, uh, like, I don't, like, there's, like, this divide where I feel I don't have access to things that, like, normal people just feel entitled to have like at that time it was literally an apartment i did not believe that that was something i could have access to like i just didn't think i'd ever have my shit together enough to have my own place like which is such a mind fuck but i really didn't i really believed that i couldn't up until then was it just your parents or your husband or someone else paying the bills yeah my parents my parents paid for my apartment all through college and then my dad was going to pay for part of my apartment. And then I took out a student loan. And that was his idea because I was going to classes like after college because I wanted to be a poet. And my dad was like, you can't do that. You should become a teacher. And so I was taking like teacher certificate classes, but I didn't want to be. Yeah. And then he was like, well, I'll co-sign this student loan. And then like I fucked him over on it um, and just stopped paying it. And was like, well, I didn't want to take it in the first place. And I didn't want to be going to like central Connecticut taking like courses towards a teacher certification. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Like, um, so I just sabotaged to get out of it. Yeah. Fair enough. And then I met Richie from there, my ex-husband. So that was like from college until like the, I met Richie on the eyes of March. Um, so from like August to the eyes of March, I lived alone after college, but my dad was paying for half of the rent half of the time. And then I, 
got a student loan that I made him end up paying for. So I made him pay for it the whole time, really. Um, and then I moved in with Richie and then I moved in with my mom and then I moved in with my boyfriend, Joe, very briefly. And then, and then, yeah, I was fucking couch surfing through Twitter. How does that work? And like- <laughs> I couch surf all the way up California through Twitter, through fucking social media. I mean, sometimes you wake up and fucking some strange dude's fingering you, but mostly it's, you save a lot of money. <laughs> In one sentence, it's a a balancing act. I miss the early days of comedy because, like, if you're like attractive and non-threatening to men, and men in comedy are so threatened so easily by like everything in life, by like they're so threatened by breathing, you know. Um, you get a lot of you get a lot of shows because they feel like they're better than you, so they're actually it's easier to get work when you're less funny as a woman. So what did... Con- Especially when you're like less funny and newer. You know what I mean? Because they're all like, oh, she has potential. Yeah. Uh, did comedy... Was comedy the thing that brought you out to LA? No, I mean, I came to LA because like shit was all fucked up in New York and I, I didn't have another coast to move to. What'd you, know you what do? I mean? Oh, so you did comedy in New York. I did comedy. I started comedy in Connecticut. And then I moved to New York. I wanted to move to San Francisco, but that didn't work out. Did you like my reach- mom gave me my stepdad's car and then like I got like towed in New York when I was like doing coke on the Upper East Side with somebody I met off Twitter as you do and I got towed and she's like I can't even have this car in my name anymore it's a liability and we went to the DMV and she signed the car over to me and I was like that's great but then she like secretly put a lien on it I was gonna sell it and move to San Francisco she secretly put a lien on it and I went to go sell it and they're like you can't sell this car it has a lien on it and I was like what so uh you know how i got rid of that car i lent it to a comic and they got in a car accident (laughs) how long did you do comedy in new york three and a half years okay and then i'm antsy as shit i like to do things for three and a half years and i've been (laughs) here three and a half where am i going next i'm just i'm curious because i i listen to probably too many like comedian podcasts and like they talk a lot about the culture like the toxic toxic culture of like comedy clubs and and men at comedy clubs and i'm curious as a woman like what your experience was and i don't know i don't i haven't heard anything about like the new york comic scene so i'm even more curious now um oh my god i mean it was really bad for me like i was drunk and i had no self-esteem so like I've never talked about this before, but I remember coming out of a blackout, sucking the club owner's dick at the Comedy Connection in Rhode Island. Like, I was brand new. I was fucking, I mean, they really took advantage. And this other girl, Kim, she started, and then everybody would only give her attention. She hooked up with all these, I think her name was Kim. She hooked up with, like, more than one person in the scene, and they treated her like she was this dirty whore. And, like, she couldn't even perform. She couldn't even show up anymore because she had dated more than one person in the scene like what it was it was so puritanical and such a boys club and it was made very clear that there was only room for one woman and they were like shitty to me because I wasn't funny day one like everybody else got this grace but I remember guys saying to me things like well you're an attractive woman and I what I have is that I'm funny so like you don't get to have both. And that was very much the mentality like that was said to me like more than once. Like this is, you know, I became funny so that women would talk to me like guys are already going to talk to you. And I'm like, 
I am literally retarded and need a creative outlet. Like I have such a hard time socially. The only time I feel comfortable in a group is if I know all the fucking rules are very, very clear. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so no, that was not why I was doing comedy to get laid. But this guy, Ryan Browth, fucking thorn in my side. I was brand new. He was the booker's son at Comics at Foxwoods. Everybody wants to work there because it's the big money club where the big, big names come through, like Doug Stanhope, Amy Schumer, you know? And uh, we would hang out and smoke weed. He would let me in the club for free. And this is very much what I believed I was entitled to. And, um, man, we would hook up sometimes, but it really sucked just because he would come in three pumps and I just really can't work with that. You know what I mean? I just can't. Like he would text me in the middle of the night, each I period, which is like the same effort that he put in sex, you know, three strokes, he was done. And I really couldn't work with that. And then I, his favorite comic was Hannibal Burris. And he'd been trying to get Hannibal Burris to the club and convince his dad that he should have Hannibal Burris. This is before Hannibal outed Cosby. So he was way less famous. And, uh, and, and Hannibal's a total sex pest. So it's funny because people are always like, look at this guy that's worse than me. <laughs> I'm an angel. It's always like you spot it, you got it, huh, Hannibal? Um, anywho, I ended up hooking up with Hannibal, which fucked up shit between me and Ryan so profoundly. And for years, people would go up to Ryan and be like, how did it feel to open for your favorite comic? Not nice. Um, and I just, like, we made out and I passed out in his room or something. And then he still would, like, he was still booty calling me for, I ended up, it all, and so... Shit got weird with me and Ryan. One night I was in New York, the same weekend where the car got towed because I was on the Upper East Side. I went before that. I had been in Times Square, small crack with cowboy hat on uh, after being at the Comedy Cellar. And I went back and I went to Hannibal's Knitting Factory Sunday Night Show. Who walks in but fucking Ryan from Connecticut? It's awkward as fuck because I've been denying that I slept with Hannibal. And I, because I had it, I made out with him and I fell asleep and everyone's mad at me. I, Ryan asked me if I want to smoke. He's staying at the Trump Plaza. I say, okay. I go to the bathroom after we smoke. He follows me in and tries to force himself on me. I fight him off. And then what do I do to get back at him? I go fuck Hannibal. That made so much sense to me in that moment. I drove right the fuck to Brooklyn. I was like, how's that, Ryan? Fuck you. And, uh, God, it was, it was just like masturbating in a cold, dark room if you hated your hand, you know? You just really had no emotional connection at all to that hand. And, uh, and then I dropped him off at the airport and went to the Upper East Side. So that was that. Uh, and then when I was in my first place that I lived after my mom's, me and my boyfriend got in this big fight on New Year's Eve at a party to the point where he called the cops and then he got arrested and I drank a whole bottle of vodka and burned my face off with a laser peel after he left, as you do. This guy came over that I never would have hooked up with that was a comic. And I remember him like, I was like browning out and he like turned me around because he didn't want to like look at my burnt off face while he fucked me. And uh, I didn't see him for a long time. And then I saw this, so fast forward five years, I haven't seen either of these people. I'm in New York and I stopped doing comedy. I keep losing my voice when I'm gonna do comedy. I'd been in the psych ward that year on Christmas. That was really embarrassing because it was like comics were somehow involved. It was somebody had to go pick up my dog from the psych ward or whatever because they can't be in this. It was so embarrassing. And I do this comedy festival. I run into this motherfucker 
for the first time and I had 13 reasons why I come out. So I'm texting him like, you know what you did? Cause I didn't realize that it wasn't my fault until I saw him like, wait, if you're drunk and if you're blacked out, it's not your fault. Oh, I had no idea. Cause I felt so much shame about everything I did. So it was all my fault. That's what my parents taught me to believe. And, uh, and then two days later I got canceled. This fake Facebook account was made up claiming to be an open micer that I digitally raped and left a fake fingernail inside of them. I had not worn fake fingernails and I do not believe that's how they work. And I have actually been digitally raped and I know that you don't need something like a fake fingernail as evidence. There's DNA in there, but nobody's listening to me right now. You know what I mean? I just got kicked off. I'm still not allowed at QED in Astoria or the Creek in the Cave, which is now in Austin. There's still people that don't talk to me. Nobody would talk to me. This person didn't even exist. Like, this was and they were saying ago. things that weren't true. This was five years ago. They were even oh, okay. saying things that weren't true, that were provably not true. And everyone was so like, hi to me too. And nobody liked me, which was my own fault, right? Yeah, that's how it all played out. And everybody thought that I, it was one of those two guys that started this rumor, you know? Yeah. Because I had talked about them openly at this point. Um, and I'll never know. I'll never know who started that rumor. But it certainly was convenient for both of them. That is a, a heavy time in New York. And so you so you're out of comedy at that point. You no, did. I was not out of comedy. Like I was gonna quit comedy and then they told me I couldn't have comedy and then I was like, I don't fucking think so. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I could sit in my house all day, but if you tell me I have to quarantine, like all I can think about is fucking down the street. Just don't don't tell are you so you're the person don't tell you to not do something because you will do the exact opposite well, it depends on how i feel about you if i feel like you're trying to like be authoritarian towards me or control me or fucking then i'm gonna do it to be like fuck you you don't fucking control me where's that where Which, does where does that mentality come from um literally having no autonomy <laughs> where else would it come from yeah parents with no boundaries I, I don't know where else it could come from yeah that's fair <laughs> parents who have no idea what's best for you because they don't pay attention what's best for you is what makes them look good you know what's what's your relationship like with your mom now sometimes i text her about her cat it was a cat it's a cat only relationship okay yeah cause you, i mean you mentioned your dad earlier i'm i was just curious like how that played out oh i told him that i told him that i tried to have a conversation with him about how we had different values yeah that i like worked on really really hard therapies aa sponsor blah 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 and he just turned around and like was so it was just so sad like the way he tried to dismantle it and be like and then he was all like oh, i demand respect and you're setting conditions and like he's like how dare you say i value image you should never talk about me in a mean way online. Like why Gerald? Cause you value image like fuck out of here. It's so sad when people are so smart and you watch their like mental gymnastics. Like how could you be so not self-aware? And once like the spell broke for me where I'm like, this is just some guy who doesn't, will do literally anything to not look at himself. Yeah. Like that's all my dad's ever been, you know? And it's all been smoke and mirrors. Like we're all like, Oh my God, Gerald. Like he's like this big, like he's the most important person in the world. And then I'm, I'm like, finally, I'm like, you're just some fucking personal injury lawyer in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Like, you ain't shit, bro. Like, I'm sorry. Like, it's 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 all a, a fucking smoke and mirrors mind game. 
So like, no, I'm not going to like live my life making myself miserable to make you happy when you're so committed to misunderstanding me. But basically I just left him on red. And then the next day, and my dad's very wealthy. He was like, I forgot the Hulu password. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? He's sitting here like, I demand respect, but I don't have my own Hulu. You guys, I have great news. Everybody is drinking less. Seriously, it's trending downwards, but you know what's trending upwards? Non-alcoholic beer. Non-alcoholic beer sales have grown 30% year over year because people are drinking less alcohol. So what do you want to put in there? What do you want to mix in with your normal drinks? Maybe you want to switch it up, right? You want to have a normal beer, you want to have a non-alcoholic beer. You want a normal beer or non-alcoholic beer. That's, that's a great pattern. That's a great way to start. And you know where you can start doing that? Well-Being Brewing. Well-Being Brewing is out of St. Louis, and they have some damn tasty beers. I'm a big fan of their Intentional IPA. You've heard me talk about it before. It's got the 16-ounce can. It's full of hop flavor. But, man, they have a dark amber that's really, really tasty. Hellraiser Dark Amber. They have the the Golden Wheat Ale. They have so many different beers, and all of them are delightful and easy to interchange if you're looking to just switch it up so you're not drinking as much or if you want to quit drinking altogether, they are your place to go. You can go to wellbeingbrewing.com slash friend request and save 10% on me, guys. I got this for you. And if you don't remember that web address, just go to wellbeingbrewing.com and use the code friend request when you check out. There's a lot of ways to do it. Either way, you're going to save yourself 10% and you're going to save yourself a freaking hangover. So go get it done. Love that beer. Love that brewery. Love you guys. That's why I want to save you that 10%. Wellbeingbrewing.com slash friend request. Back to the show. He sucks. Like, I mean, my dad's funny and he's smart. And like, if he, you know, people spend like their whole life, like either going towards or away from themselves. I mean, you get to this point and the divide between yourself and your truth yeah. has to be so big. I mean, how could one even, why are you going to start crossing it at 70? So I just wrote back. I was like, uh, we're not talking until you are getting therapy for your narcissistic behavior. I'm familiar with that ultimatum. I've, I've tried that out. Um, I, I mean, by that, I mean, we're never talking again, but like, <laughs> I want you to know it's your fault. Like, I need you to know, I need you to know it was me. Yeah. You I was going to ask you what kind of like boundaries you've had to set up with, with family members. I imagine. And I imagine that also played like a, a difficult, a difficult role, right? Like, especially, you know, if one of your parents is like paying for your apartment when you're younger and stuff, like setting boundaries with them at the same time is, is hard. You know, uh, how do you set by like, I'm, and I'm asking this from my own experience, like with my own family is like, Hey, I need this from you, but also like, fuck off you know like. you just become in a place where you don't need anything from them that was part of what broke it at the beginning of the pandemic my dad offered me you know i had this idea that i would like get my dad always dangled these carrots like oh if you just did this we'd love you if you just did this we'd love you and i really believed if i like got sober stayed sober that he would love me because they made it all about you know and at the same time i'm seeing other people who had like habituated problematic substance use that parents didn't treat them like we don't love you because you know what I mean? So like there was part of me that already knew like the conditions weren't real. Like there was no, it was a carrot dangle. But then I remember watching somebody's mom like fly out from the East coast to watch them get a year. And I like suggested it to my dad and he literally laughed at me. Um, 
like in my face, like into the phone. Like it was the best joke I'd ever told him. So yeah, we're just like, when that didn't happen and then the pandemic happened and he offered me money and I was like, wow, I have recovered, you know, like my dad's, I'm not asking, I don't need anything. He's offering me. And I was like, I'm okay right now, but I really like the idea of knowing it's there. And that made me feel really safe. Yeah. And I would, I felt like, oh, I don't need it now. Like I felt really proud of myself, like let's push it. And then like a year into the pandemic, I really did need it. And I also secretly thought that maybe he would give me extra money for my birthday because I didn't take the money he offered, you know? Nope, nope, nope. And when I finally asked for it, he sent me like $700 in a shitty email. Like telling me how disappointed he was in me because I couldn't plan and I made poor choices. And obviously I shouldn't have come home recently because I couldn't afford it because I was asking for money. Like literally had told him like, Hey, I don't need the money now. Probably will need it deeper into the pandemic. Yeah. Can I ask you for it then? Okay. And I'm thinking actual money, not like literally what I charge for a blow job. Like he, my, can you believe my dad gave me only one blow job. <laughs> that is a, that is, let's talk about the, that currency. <laughs> that's, it's a funny, uh, funny way. to One blow job you gave me for a whole pandemic. I, I can't, Pay my rent on one blue job a year, Gerald, you know? <laughs> Be a terrible sex worker if you could. Uh, I have like a two, <laughs> three blow job a week bills, you know? Yeah. Who doesn't? Uh, in Los Angeles. For <laughs> sake. Um, everybody, everybody has two blow job a week bills here. Or so probably three. you're touching on a couple things I want to get into. <laughs> um, <laughs> one is you mentioned like sobriety being the thing like maybe my maybe my parents will love me if i'm sober um, yeah was that like what was that the factor in being like i'm gonna quit doing shit like what was the no that was i mean kind of it was from them because it was this sense of belonging like i was first of all i've been taught by like the treatment and the addiction model and all this bullshit where they want you trapped forever that i was powerless and like after i believed that I started acting out in those ways every time I went back to substance use and then I believed it was progressive. So I would just follow whatever I had been told would happen. But all these other things weren't happening that I had been promised. So that was really weird. Um, I was smoking pot and not drinking and I liked AA, especially after getting canceled. Uh, when I got canceled, I went to AA. Nobody else would fucking talk to me yeah. and I quit smoking weed because I believed it was the only way I would truly be accepted in AA. So when I moved to California, I was so excited because I assumed that out here I could talk about being California sober openly at AA. And they were like, Oh no, no. So, and my roommate who did smoke weed, she sucked so bad. And the comics I was meeting, I wasn't impressed. They were either really, if they were funny, they were really, really fucking condescending and better than you, or they were nice and unfunny, which has been honestly the bulk of comics I've met. It's, it's a real bummer. There are funny, nice people out there, but they're usually doing way better than me with the same amount of talent. So that's confounding or it was, yeah. um, it's not. I'm like, Oh, they work consistently. How weird. And they don't piss people off all the time. So formula for success, I suppose. <laughs> um, when did you, are you, are you, you're still sober? Yes. No, I am not sober. I officially announced on Twitter that I uh, started smoking weed again a while ago. Yeah. But, but you're not drinking. 
No, but I could if I wanted to. Yeah. I don't like believe that it would be like a problem or that I like wouldn't be able to stop or I'd become some like alcohol zombie. Cause like having to go on and off opiates for surgeries over the last year. And then when I had, I was injured, which I can't talk about too much because I'm in a lawsuit. Um, and I didn't have access to painkillers and I was in so much agony. Like I had burn all the way to my muscle. Yeah. I was using Delta eight and Kratom and like looking back, I wish I had been able to use weed, but like the mental block of like, well, these things are federally legal and I never really wanted to be sober, but I'd be like, oh, well, when I drink kava kava or when I use these gray area things, it's not a problem. Not realizing that it was because I believed I could moderate those things. Like I thought they weren't drugs because I could moderate them. And I think that's the prevalent idea in that community of people who go to like kava and kratom bars and yeah. use a lot of CBD or Delta 8. They're like, oh, well, this isn't a problem. Therefore, it's not a drug. No. That's actually not true. It's not a problem because you believe you can moderate it and you want to. You're like really invested in moderating because you don't want to lose recovery. Yeah. I mean, and that's a lot, you know, and there's a lot of people on. They have AA meetings that are psychedelic friendly now here. Yeah. That's all spiraling around rationalization. I mean, everyone's on Adderall. And I'm like, oh, is that because like you don't actually want to be sober and you believe it's a punishment? So you're looking for these ways around it because that's what I was doing. I just wanted to smoke some motherfucking weed the whole time. All of a sudden I started smoking weed again. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be high all day. I like to like wait and I could take Tuesdays off for my tolerance. And I'm like, oh, look at me. Like I can actually think critically about what level that I want in my life and whether or not it's serving me and, and reevaluate it because it doesn't have shame or somebody telling me I have to involved anymore. Yeah. So, but I went off my sleep meds immediately. I'm going to smoke pot at night now instead. And uh, and I stopped taking my antidepressant. And I cut my Adderall use down to like, God, if I went from like maybe 210 milligrams a week to like 30 or 40, you know? That I'm is not... severely cutting down. <laughs> yeah, I went, well, and I quit nicotine too. So I made trades for it. Like I acknowledge that it's a substance that has effects. So I went in and was like, this is all I've really wanted to do this whole time. Um, what can I give up so that I can, you know, you got to pick your poisons. Yeah, and sure. I'm not saying pot is a poison, but it's certainly a habit that's time and money and will, ha you know, be a little hard on the body. So I was like, what? I stopped drinking, a, I stopped drinking artificial sweetener as well. Nice. Like I was really serious about it. I'm like, all right, what can I let go of if I want to pick this thing up? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's in some weird. ways I feel more sober, which I know people this won't pot always say, and it's stupid, but without like nicotine and like diet Coke and like, you know, being on Adderall and, and a sleep med every day, like that was a lot yeah. more than I put in my body now. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I never did AA, um, and like to each their own it's just like it's also weird to me that that's the only i don't know nationally like recognized organization for for what i, like, I don't know i i didn't use that uh i think a huge i per like personal belief is that like a huge part of quitting anything um is like dealing with the reason you did it to begin with right like because I, I used to run sober groups and you talk to people that are like 15 years sober and they're like, every day sucks. And I'm like, you need to 
talk to somebody because like clearly all you did was stop drinking like uh and and that's where i think there needs to be like a combination at, at minimum you know um but i get off my soapbox on that uh so i i'm i'm curious about the writing because I, I obviously you've been writing your entire life it sounds like uh when do you start doing that at like a professional level where you're getting published in, in these like national magazines and, and websites and stuff like that it's always been i've just never i've always had a hard time with consistency i recently decided like like really recently like i'm like all right i'm gonna put two hours to my writing career every day this year and just see if it changes something because I've been very like, and we are trained to like be very outcome goal based. And that's like so disempowering. Uh, I got published the first time. I, I have the letter on my bulletin board when I was, what, in the 90s? Was it the 90s? Or was it to no? know? It must have been like 2000. Here it is March 13th, 2002. Oh. And what, where was that published? Uh, your piece, Naughty Nudie, was accepted for publication in the 2002 Long River Review. Due to the record-breaking number of submissions we received, the selection process was extremely difficult. It is our pleasure to include your work. Naughty that was the best moment of my life. Nudie. Nothing will ever top that. Yeah, that's got to be a great feeling. What is the, what's the context of Naughty Nudie? It's a poem about... kind of Kind of about what I was talking about, about being autistic, like, but I didn't know it, you know? Yeah. Like it was about how like everybody else is like, it was like, how about how just kind of like out there naked, like whatevs. And everybody else is all like putting on all this shit to be like, this is who I'm, the world wants me to be or whatever. And I'm just like, whatever, naked. It's a good metaphor. Yeah. Um, when did you discover your autism? Like a fucking, a couple months ago, dude. Okay. Blowing my mind. <laughs> Okay. Brand new. One of my friends was like, Hey, I just found out autistic. And I was like, Oh, she's like, I was like, Do you think that's what's wrong with me? She's like, Why the fuck do you think I'm telling you, you idiot? And I was like, Oh. <laughs> and then you just started seeing like uh women with women on the spectrum, I guess, get misdiagnosed with uh personality disorders a lot. This is weird. My podcast co host was like, I need to talk to you about something, and I was like, I need to talk and we had both and she lives in London, independently of each other, realized we were autistic at the same exact time. And we both had been diagnosed with borderline previously. And we came together and we're like, one, two, I'm like, I have something to tell you. She's like, I, I'm like, one, two, three, I have autism. Like, what the fuck? He started reading it. I was like, oh my God. Like, I remember being younger and being like, why the fuck can't I look in people's eyes? Like, I had to train myself. But my parents would just yell at me to do it. Yeah. And I, it would fucking, like, the amount of, anguish that it used to cause me to look in someone's eyes while I was talking to them. Like I, it's like a, I don't know why it's just how it is, Yeah. but all that stuff is so genderfied that if you're a woman, it's all like emotion, whatever. And like the language of autistic symptoms is so like chill. You're like, if, if like, if I like wanted to pluck the hairs on my leg, just if I, I'm autistic in the world of autism, I'm just so stimming right in borderline, the women world. I'm self-harming. It's literally the same picture. <laughs> yeah. But that yeah, the language a... is so different. There's like, and then realizing like how that I am, I'm like reading and I'm like, oh my God, like I can work with it. 
Because it, it's not like, oh, I shouldn't be like this. It's like, oh, bitch, that's how your brain works. But the world thinks it's weird. So, like, how can we navigate? I get to go from there now, you know, yeah. which is different. Yeah, that had to be a pretty mind-blowing moment. And and recently. <laughs> I realized I wasn't powerless over alcohol. I realized I had been, like, following the insane ramblings of a fucking stockbroker from 100 years ago who cheated on his wife. And wanted an excuse and that the 12 steps come from Christian driven fascism by guys that were into Hitler and they replaced the word sin with alcohol. That was the premise of the 12 steps that all men are helpless sinners. I mean, and the way they treat alcohol, it might as well still be sin, you know, yeah. it's evil and it's, it's the devil. It's like the devil made me do it. Shit. It's classic, classic Christian driven fascism. So when that fell out, then I had always believed in reincarnation. I even have a past life memory, but I was like, bitch, you believed you were powerless over some fucking demon alcohol. Like it was a person. Obviously you are going to die and be nothing. What the fuck? God's a fairy tale. And that's all I could think about all August was death. Um, I'd also just had plastic surgery and I get really like anesthesia when you have a lot of trauma First of all, it's really depressing on the body, but with trauma, like this part of your brain still clocking that you're being like, things are being done to you against your will. Yeah. Um, so I got really, really depressed. I fucking lost AA. I couldn't even show up anymore after I did so much research into the history. And I'm like, this is insanity. Yeah. Like this is, and there was a, a committee formed to cock block Bill Wilson because he was such a bad sexual predator to all the new people. Like, this is a really profoundly sick human being. I'm not going to pretend he's my fucking God anymore. And then once I lost that, and then I I watched these, like, kind of deprogramming. I Google deprogramming AA because I'm like, this is a cult. And then they're like, watch how the people treat you when you leave. And you're like, that's how you know you're in a cult, man. No transparency about money. This charismatic leader. Forget it. All the All the things. And then I lost my ability to believe in anything. So I'm like, in AA, everyone just sits around and they're like, God, 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 God. They can't even take, you could work like all year on something and then be like, God did it. Like, fuck. It's the most disempowering fucking system in the world. And then they're like, oh, you have a problem? Don't think about it. You're not allowed to think silly. Uh, go talk to a stranger who also isn't allowed to think. I don't, they can think for you and you can think for them, but this is not, yeah, go do that. I told my sponsor I was suicidal and she uh, suggested that I pray about it because it was just alcoholism. It was just alcoholism. No, I was having a really bad reaction to the anesthesia. Um, and I was taking Ambien, which was making it worse, which I was prescribed by my doctor. But when you're already that depressed, yeah. nobody needs you to be on Ambien anymore. Yeah, Ambien um, can get nutty. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was having such bad anxiety about death that I was thinking about killing myself just to get it over with. You know, I'm like, yeah, I, mean, I can't live. I was like, I don't think I can live my life thinking about death the whole time. Therefore, I should just die. And she was like, oh, that's just alcoholism. Alcoholism is a term that was invented 100 years ago by a man with my last name. Don't tell me that. Do not tell me that. So that fell apart. My internal, like, it's like I lost my skeleton. Yeah. And it had just been like a pile of mush that doesn't even know what the fuck they believe in. Well, I'm like, well, now I don't believe in horoscopes. I go to like pray to my angels and guys. I'm like, you're not real. Fuck. Nothing means anything. I got like, I became completely nihilist. And in there, I realized I was autistic because 
<laughs> and that was like the kicker. There's something like specifically in Asperger's called existential OCD. And I was like, oh, is that what's going on? This is all I could think about. I would go on these like four hour walks in the heat wave, just like sweating because like, at least if I was moving, I was like thinking about death less. I was still thinking about it, but it like wasn't yeah. making me feel like I was going to explode. So yeah, that all happened. That all happened at once. Did you have any uh, sort of religious background in your family? I think my parents were secretly atheists and just went through the motions because looking back and being like, where did I get my right underlying beliefs from? But this yeah, is like, because yeah. I used to swipe away from people that were atheists. Like, obviously, there was something underneath that was really fearful underneath. Like, but when you're in AA, it's like, God, 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 well, that's, God, God, yeah, God. That's one of the reasons. You know, like, so you, there's no space to not. Yeah. To, there's no space for critical thought. The religious aspect of, of AA was was a big and, to the, and still is like a reason that I'm like, hmm. Right, they'll be like, oh, it's a God of your own understanding. And then you'll sit through an entire meeting where they talk about if you like really are serious, you'll get on your knees. But like, why would a God of my own understanding have your requirements for how the position of my body when I pray? That doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. Why do you get to that decide sounds, that? Was it always? I thought it's my God that I get to make up. Was this, was this always the same? I know, I'm just curious. <laughs> was this always the same like meeting? Like, did you well, try here's the thing, other groups? It, yes. I've tried AA in many different countries and worlds. And here's the thing with AA is just like my dad, um, because it was always like, Rebecca, if you just do AA, right, we'll love you. You'll have a life beyond your wildest dreams. And then I start to meet these people with 30 years sober who think every, like smoking unfiltered camels and being miserable. And I'm like, the more I got to know these like AA big timers, the more I realized they're all sick. And then everybody's like, oh, don't look into the AA history. Hee hee hee. Oh, why'd you do that? Or you like see like questions like, but they're like, oh, and I remember my neighbor being like, well, what will you do for a support system? And I like, I was like, what do you do for a support system? That's, and she was like, oh, and I was like, yeah, that's fucking right. And my aunt for years, I'd be like, well, alcoholics do this or recoveries like this. And she'd be like, honey, all people do that. Honey, like people be like, oh, the journey of recovery. And it's like, bitch, that's just life. It's just life. Like I'm sick of people who had a problem needing to separate themselves in this profound way and be like, oh, you know how when you're in recovery, you breathe. <laughs> it's just being a fun, like the peeling of the onion. It's like literally called life. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to shift the lens. <laughs> Take us away from this for a minute. Um, where does, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't know what terminology to use. Where does, where does sex work? Uh, only fans. I mean, what do you call it? And where does that come into play? Um, well, it's a great workaround for being neurodivergent and not being good at, uh, bowing to authority, consistency, navigating, you know, especially like casual relationships are really hard. I don't do small talk well. Yeah. If you didn't, couldn't tell, you know, um, I'm constantly making people uncomfortable with my honesty. So the work world is always really challenging and for not the reasons that one would expect, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and I also don't have great executive dysfunction. Like I zone out a lot. I'm just kind of like duping around, like, it takes a lot out of me to like, so sex work allows me to like go and do my art and like do my shit and like 
have a roof over my head, you know, and like not have to work for someone or it's always bothered me. Cause like part of like being on the spectrum is kind of outside looking in at society. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. What motivates people like in general, I've always kind of felt like an alien. Yeah. And so it's like hard for me to like, I don't have respect for a lot of the social mores. And so it's not like I don't notice. I'm just like, Oh no, I'm not going to like let you go. Cause you looked at your watch, like be a fucking adult and using words. But that's, how people do because at some point the whole society decided that let's spend thousands of years developing a common language and then let's decide that it's impolite to use it effectively. Okay. And let's all spend the rest of our life interpreting each other when we could just say it, yeah. we just say it, but it's like, that's rude. I don't get it. So it's funny that I don't have to deal with that shit in sex work, you know? Yeah. I, I, I and I just jumping back to being on the spectrum. I can't like, stand like most people. I really, I can't, I can't do them. It makes me angry. Sorry. You're fine. I, I'm, I'm, it's oh, it, I don't know. It's not funny. Funny is not the right word, but when you describe the traits that you like, don't either, you think you don't do well, like quote unquote, I'm air quoting, but um, like, these are all check boxes for being on the spectrum, right? Like that's, was there just a huge light bulb of, of like joy and understanding when you kind it was of a lot of grief? Kind of it? Yeah, well, it was a lot of grief because like my parents had always just blamed me, so I blamed me, and there was a lot of disconnection where I didn't realize all these weird things I did were connected yeah. to the like because I had been like the emotional dysregulation part is so like feminized that that had been sectioned off and everybody had pointed at that my whole life you know yeah rather than like oh she's like over in the corner repeating a word over and over like oh stop being weird you know and then like move, look in people's eyes that's gotta be I nice like to have a name for it. so hard <laughs> yeah now i'm like oh that's because i will listen to the same song like over and over like like thousands of times it's embarrassing but it's like whatever it's just me being weird and it, I didn't know that like other people, like other people that, that have brains that work like mine also hyper fixate. Yeah. I've been listening to this true crime podcast for like months. Like I've got to be 150 episodes in somehow. Like I'm just, I'm committed. I'm going to finish it. Like if I found a new author I like this spring, Taylor Jenkins Reid, fucking shout out to her. Thank you. I've read everything this bitch has read, written. Everything. It's like eight or nine books. It's not that big a deal, but it's like, I got to see it through now. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That, I mean, that, so yeah, that, it's a relief, a but it's also sword. a lot of like, <laughs> it's a relief, but it's also like mourning too. Cause I feel sad for like, I just have more mindfulness in social interactions now. Cause I notice like when I get excited, I get what other people would perceive as too comfortable, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so comfortable. It makes them uncomfortable. Just- <laughs> Whatever, like I can intellectually understand a lot of this shit, but I still am like, what? Like, like sports, like it's so strange to me. Like, what? Huh? Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, Why I have a friend care? that, like, like, how do you care? Social what cues are. It, he's never gotten social cues, and then when we figured out, like, he's on the spectrum. Like, I was, uh, uh, so much stuff made sense, and all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I guess I'm not that pissed off at you for you know, all that shit you were like that you just like i don't know i guess didn't get kind of and for lack of better terminology um anyway all right yeah i i, I jumped back that but i i am curious 
and this is coming from a place of zero knowledge, so I apologize, but you, you've mentioned a number of sexual traumas. Does it feel empowering to, to like use your body in the, in kind of under your own terms as far as like sex work and stuff like that goes? Yeah. But like, I will say that I need to mention that like, I feel I didn't just bring up sexual trauma. You asked me about comedy. And oh, men, yeah. I'm, and, I'm not. Yeah. And it's like, well, obviously, like, of course, comics have assaulted me. Like, please, I was in comedy for 10 years. Owning a vagina the whole time, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I think it's the only time I've ever had. I also, like, had really, like, disorganized attachment style. And I would choose, like, really rejecting people because my parents were really rejecting yeah. And that felt like home to me. So just getting caught up in like that kind of bullshit was just, and I don't, I mean like meeting, like it, it blew my mind that people would pay to be around me. Cause I just felt so rejected by everyone, my whole fucking life, including by myself, you know, like this isn't how I wanted to be. I'm like, Oh, next year I'll be different. And finally, like, you know, you get older and you're like, Oh, like everything is always in a perpetual state of, being done it's never all really done house is never like very rarely perfectly clean for how long an hour yeah, yeah you know before the cat like walks across and like dumps like another fucking yeti pile of hair <laughs> yeah my uh i mean i i relate to what you said a lot because my like my addiction is has always been validation now that's morphed into other things over my lifetime but that's like always been the thing. Like if, if at the end of the day, whatever I'm doing is going to make you like tell me I'm good enough or uh, attractive or talented or anything, like I'm going to keep doing it. Right. Like, cause I want that. Cause I never felt like I, I felt that I never got that from myself, first of all, and, and let alone like other people in my life. Um, like, you know, when it mattered. Um, so I, I guess that's, so that's what you're getting now right and yeah yeah that's nice yeah even like noticing like oh wow like i put so much into my social world because there'd been so much rejection there and i had this idea like i have to like overcompensate by making sure there's like a, and then i was like oh you don't need to do that like everybody else is kind of putting energy into like their careers and their love life and like you could pull back a little bit from trying so hard to maintain relationships because i do notice that like they cycle you know what i mean like you're close to somebody this year and probably not and like, there's no, it's like, I'm trying to like, I've decided this, it's like that part of me that's like, well, I'm fundamentally unlovable. Therefore I'm never going to be with anybody. So I should probably like cultivate all these really strong friendships so that when I'm old, I'll have people. And it's just, I can't live for like the future like that, you know, like, cause it's not, it doesn't exist. And I relate to that sentiment very much. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so knowing like what I was like, yeah, understanding how my brain worked allowed me to kind of take a step back and look at it like an observer. Yeah. Because I very, because I had so much, everything I was doing that I didn't like that wasn't, felt like it was serving me was tied up in shame because I didn't understand why I couldn't just stop, you know, like interrupting or over talking or info. Like, and now the paradox of being like, oh, it's because I'm like this. And then just being like extra mindful. Like I never am sure when people are done talking yeah. and it turns out if I breathe extra, like I'll find out that they weren't done yet. 
that damn extra breath. Um, well, I, I mean, I think we're pretty current. Is there, is there anything that I skipped over that you wanted to talk about? No. Oh. Um, where can, Oh my God, oh, please follow my OnlyFans. It's RR639. That's what I was going to say. Where can people find you? <laughs> uh, if there are any literary agents listening, I would very much uh, like you to take a look at my query materials for my essay collection. And uh, I have a podcast called Brutal Vulnerability. Uh, we are working on improving the sound. Wow, what a sell. What a sale. <laughs> uh, and you can find me on on Twitter and uh, Instagram at Rebecca Rush 639 1B2Cs. 1B2Cs. No pun intended. And you can find me on Venmo at RR639. I'm <laughs> always go. available on Venmo. Always. Hey, for you know what? For the record, so am I. <laughs> so, just uh, throw that out there, too. Well, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I loved getting to know you, and uh, I'm always a little sad at the end of this because it's it's you know one sided, and that such is the format of an interview. But it's it was really great to get to know you and 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 meet you, kind of in that order. And I, yeah, I, I really appreciate. it. Do you want it. to tell me your life story now? <laughs> you, you but I do have to turn have the AC time. on. It's so fucking hot in here. Um. Well, yeah. Thank you so much. I'm going to go eat dinner and you enjoy living in a much better climate than I'm in. So it's good for you. You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? All right. You just listened to my interview with Rebecca Rush. And what a rush it was. How many times do you think that joke's been made? Probably a lot, huh? It's a, uh, so I didn't keep it in here and, and I, I don't know why I would, but this interview started so confrontational. I'd made some comments about her apartment, um, because it reminded me of an apartment I had in California. And I think she interpreted those comments to be like me making fun of her apartment uh, and we haven't, we've never spoken before today. So it was, it just, it started out very confrontational and, and I'm happy it cleared up. And when we got to get to the content that we got to and just a fascinating person and to find the, that diagnosis, um, being on the spectrum to find things explained to you like that, oh, all these behaviors I thought were weird or abnormal or just people criticize you for to have a name for that and be able to identify it. Um, so powerful. So glad we talked about that. And I, <laughs> gentle reminder, the opinions of this <laughs> episode are those of Rebecca Rush's and not my own. Um, she has some strong opinions about a lot of things and, and it was really great to hear about it. And I know I have a lot of uh, listeners that are sober and so I want to make sure, like I want to be transparent there. You know, I'm not an AA person, but I also, um, you know, I didn't fact check all the stuff that Rebecca said. So if that is a avenue you want to go down, go nuts. Um, she is entitled to feel however she wants about that stuff, especially as someone that's been in it, you know? So, oh, there's my extra breath, just like she was talking about. 
but it's, what is it? December? Oh my God. No, almost. Depending on when you're listening to this, it might already be December. This year's flown by and it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, grad school's almost over. I think I have an announcement for the end of the month. So look for that. <laughs> the end of the year, I should say. Um, yeah. And I hope you guys are just doing great. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. I am thankful for all of you listeners and friends and supporters, um, supporters on the Patreon, like Michelle and Katie and Andy and another Katie. Oh, that's funny. And, uh, oh, you guys, Kara, um, there's, there's a bunch of people here. I cannot name them all and you can join them for a dollar a month. What's well, a little more? It's a dollar oh nine. Buck oh nine. You know what? That was a funny joke to me, and now it's just confusing to everybody. <laughs> but it's a dollar oh nine a month. Uh, head over to patreon.com slash friend request pod. You can support the show there and get a bunch of extra behind the scenes stuff and into both the podcast and my life if you so choose. Oh, Dustin's on there. Yeah, you know Dustin. Uh, all right. I'm going to go. I feel like I'm rambling, but I love you guys. Thanks for listening. Have a beautiful week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.